0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Pentagon has a new plan to require COVID-19 vaccines for all members of the U.S. military. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says he will seek presidential approval to make the vaccines mandatory by mid-September. AUSTIN SAYS THE DEADLINE COULD MOVE UP IF MILITARY INFECTION RATES RISE OR IF THE VACCINE RECEIVES FINAL FDA APPROVAL. THE NAVY HAS A NEW SECRETARY. THE SENATE UNANIMOUSLY CONFIRMED CARLOS DEL TORO, A FORMER SURFACE WARFARE OFFICER, TO LEAD THE DEPARTMENT. DEL TORO SAYS AS SECRETARY, HE PLANS TO MAINTAIN A 355-SHIP FLEET FOR THE NAVY. HE WILL TAKE OVER FOR ACTING NAVY SECRETARY THOMAS HARKER who was assistant Navy secretary under the Trump administration. The $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill went to the Senate for a final vote today. The Senate voted to end debate on the bill on Sunday night. The bill includes $550 billion of new federal spending over the next five years. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, has a new system to track weaknesses in government networks. The Vulnerability Disclosure Policy Platform allows agencies to collaborate with the public to improve security. Bob Bigman is a cybersecurity consultant and former Chief Information Security Officer at the CIA. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you. Why is a centrally managed platform a good thing? And how does it enhance cybersecurity at federal agencies?
2: Well, I think the idea is excellent. Uh, it, it basically improves the, the, the security of the code running in our public facing uh, internet websites, which obviously the government agencies rely on to communicate and collaborate with um, uh, their customers, the citizens, uh, and these are constant targets from um, all, all classes of hackers, from the scriptors all the way up through the nation states. So the more eyes and the more tools you can get to uh, test them and exercise the code and the configurations, uh, it's, it's an excellent idea.
1: So CISA says that the platform will encourage collaboration between the public and private sectors. Why do you think that collaboration is important in helping agencies address cyber vulnerabilities?
2: Yeah, it's very important. Uh, Today, most of the uh, organization, most of the federal agencies use a small set of uh, companies referred to as inside the beltway contractors to do a lot of their pen testing. Uh, And they tend to have all the same tolls, same mindsets, same approaches to security testing. This opens up uh, penetration testing and security scanning to a broader population of people who do the bug track and bug bounty work and it enables them to communicate with more people who have different perspectives, different tools, and different ways of looking at cybersecurity and do different types and levels of testing that allows them now to collaborate with, a, a again, a much larger audience. And the more eyes and the more tools and the more people you have looking at your um, configurations and your code base of your web servers, the better you are. So uh, I, I again, uh, credit to CISA, good, good work.
1: So how can agencies use that data that they're gonna be collecting from this platform to implement cybersecurity changes, because it's not enough just to have the data.
2: Yeah, right, yeah, well, that's always the issue. Um, So this gives them a, you know, one chop stop -stop one-stop-shop capability, basically, to use a platform that's already uh, contracted out and already available. And all they need to do is work with their community of uh, of individuals who are gonna be doing the testing. And basically they get these reports on specific vulnerability types that come into the agency and basically they need to add them and include them in their uh, threat vulnerability assessment capability uh, management systems that they, these are, these are gonna be exposures they didn't know anything about um, and then they can go through and whether there are code issues or configuration issues, they can immediately fix them right away um, and have access to this information over a period of time that allows them to see, tr- them to see trends that are existing on their on their website. Um, I, I've worked with a number of companies who've used these tools, and although initially it, it takes a while to get running, over a period of time, you know, you do basically end up with uh, a better understanding of where the more uh, organic and root-level issues are with the way you're running and managing the code base and configuration of your web servers. They're very important information to have.
1: So this platform is voluntary for agencies. Yeah. Do you think it should be mandatory?
2: Good question. Uh, yeah, I, th- I don't know why you wouldn't make it mandatory for any federal government internet-facing website that's servicing uh, the population, right? It just seems to me like a, a like a you know, obvious thing to do. Uh, I'm sure they needed to make it voluntary first to get some experience and some history behind it and to make sure people understand this is not harmful, this is good. Um, And hopefully over time, uh, you know, someone will wake up and say, hey, why don't we make this uh, mandatory? Because again, there's no reason not to do it.
1: Well, given that it's still voluntary, what do you think the decision process should look like for agencies to determine if this is the right system for them
2: well the first thing i think about is uh, number one uh what what, what's the level of criticality of your internet facing web servers you know is it really important for you to use as i'm sure many of them are for many organizations and federal agencies uh, organizations like veterans uh, who rely heavily on the use of their web presence Um, if it's critical this is an added tool in the toll set, uh, in the toolkit to help you secure them. The other thing I think is important is make sure you have something you mentioned earlier, a mechanism in place where you can take the findings and take the exposures and actually turn them around uh, in a meaningful time period uh, to fix them and, and, and basically you know, produce and publish a different, uh, you know, a, a secured website. So it's, it's it's a level of criticality, and two, knowing that in and in st- in making sure you have an implementable capability to install the, the fixes. Uh,
1: quickly, Bob, are there any workforce issues that managers need to consider?
2: Training, hiring new people? The one nice thing about this idea is you're buying it almost as a service, okay? This is an offering CISA has to enable you basically to use it as a service they offer. And all you do basically is, you know, set up the arrangement with, your org- with the uh, company uh, that, are, that are contracting them, um, enter your information, publish your website, and basically the information starts arriving, and uh, you have to have the capability. And, and this is where I, I, I think you're, you're going with your question. You do have to have the talent base inside your organization to understand some of these exposures that the bug trackers find are very uh, obscure and uh, somewhat abstract and you better have talent on on hand to understand what they found and more importantly of course you know how to fix it
1: great bob thanks so much we'll be watching this as it develops thank you for being on the program sure thank you coming next practice makes perfect for responding to biological threats straight ahead on government matters how agencies can prepare to face what's next after the covid 19 pandemic you're watching wjla 24 7 news Departments of Homeland Security, Defense, Health and Human Services, and Agriculture regularly run interagency exercises to test preparedness for biological attacks. But the Government Accountability Office says the COVID-19 pandemic showed a lack of action in response. Chris Curry is Director of Emergency Management, Disaster Recovery, and DHS Management Issues at GAO. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you. GA's report says that there were 74 interagency biological incident exercises that federal agencies conducted over a 10 year time span. This goes back to 2009. How effective were those exercises in preparing the government for the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Well, it's interesting. The exercises themselves were pretty good. Uh, What we found was that in many cases, the exercises had identified the exact type of challenges and gaps that we saw actually happen in the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, some of the exercises had found that there was gonna be a large scale coordination challenge between federal agencies not knowing what to do with such a large disaster and pandemic. They also identified that knowing what the state and local capabilities were gonna be in such an event was gonna be a challenge as well. So the exercises did their job. The problem is, is that we didn't actually follow up on the gaps that were identified and close those before the pandemic happened.
1: So what would you have liked to see come out of those exercises that would have put the federal government in a better position to deal with the pandemic?
0: Well, this is something we see a lot in the emergency management world, which is exercises are done and often after something really bad happens in real life, after action reports are done. But then we move on and we don't follow up on the gaps and we don't identify who's supposed to close those gaps. So a couple things, first of all, we need to define the capabilities in the future that are needed to prepare for something like this. And then we need to actually close the gaps when we identify them and and find the agencies that are accountable for doing that and follow up.
1: So you had mentioned before that there was a lack of communication and deficiencies in how agencies actually communicated with each other how can they improve the way they communicate the results and recommendations of their future exercises?
0: Well, first of all, uh, they, need to, uh, they need to address what was actually identified during these exercises. So uh, for example, in 2019, there was a large scale exercise conducted called Crimson Contagion. It actually tested uh, a large flu pandemic across the country and identified that at the beginning of that, which federal agencies were supposed to take charge and take what action was going to be a challenge. So, you know, if we're gonna spend the money and take the time to actually do the exercises and identify these gaps and challenges, then we better follow up and close them in the future before these things happen.
1: Sure, so what, does the GEO recommend a mechanism to ensure that agencies do that follow up um, after exercises and implement changes?
0: That's what we recommended in this report. We actually have 16 recommendations, uh, four, four are unique and they're to each of the four agencies that you talked about up front. But the first step is define the capabilities that we really need to test for future pandemics or biological events. The second step is communicate that to federal state and local partners to figure out what needs to be done. And then lastly, do the exercises and follow up and determine who's accountable for closing the gaps when they're identified.
1: Chris, we talked about you know these biological exercises and you did talk about a large scale flu um, pandemic. That was, there was an exercise for that. What other types of biological incidents are we talking about here besides a pandemic?
0: That's a great question. Uh, the big thing we looked at here, what we call national events. So things that are gonna affect most of the country. This is one of the problems is in the past, at least in the, the recent past, a lot of pandemic, and uh, public health emergencies were very local, so think things like Zika, or you know, certain flu might have broken out in certain parts of the country. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic was a nationwide, worldwide event. So it's been 100 years since we had something like that. so. Um, part of the you know, this also includes biological events from terrorism. This could be a man-made event. So anything that has a cascading effect and could potentially affect the whole country is what we looked at.
1: So we're talking about uh, diseases. We're talking about Um, terrorism, biological terror attacks, also accidental um, incidents, isn't that right?
0: Absolutely, I mean, you could have an accidental outbreak from from a lab breach or something getting out of a lab and infecting uh, anybody in different parts of the country. And and one important thing to think about here is that, um, you know, the cascading effects of this were huge. I mean, obviously the death count is massive, but, but even an event like this, if the death count is not massive, it can have huge psychological impacts and economic impacts. And it's really a Homeland Security issue at large.
1: So what will you keep track of as agencies continue to develop these exercises, these routines?
0: Good question. So there is actually already a, a biological defense strategy, a biodefense strategy across the whole of federal government Um, We think that these recommendations we made in this report needs to be integrated into the mechanism for implementing that. So there's a steering committee made up of the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, Agriculture, and um, Health and Human Services. And we want to see the capabilities developed as part of that effort, exercised, and then followed up on. So that's what we'll be watching for.
1: All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for being on the program. I appreciate it. And let's stay in touch on these issues.
0: Thank you very much
1: up next the risky business of pentagon's future defense strategy straight ahead on government matters the three strategies for mitigating the military's biggest threats we archive every episode of government matters on govmatters.tv i'll be right back STATING THE NATIONAL DEFENSE STRATEGY IS UNDERWAY FOR THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION IN THE FISCAL 2022 BUDGET REQUEST. THE WHITE HOUSE WANTS TO FOCUS ON MODERNIZING MILITARY CAPABILITIES THROUGH QUOTE, LEADING FIRST WITH DIPLOMACY. STACY Pettijohn IS SENIOR FELLOW AND DIRECTOR OF THE DEFENSE PROGRAM AT THE CENTER FOR a NEW AMERICAN SECURITY. SHE'S WRITING ABOUT FUTURE STRATEGY AND FORCE OPTIONS FOR THE DEFENSE DEPARTMENT FOR C- CNAS. You, Stacey, you outline three possible defense strategies in your report, and you conclude that what you're calling the high-end deterrence strategy
3: is the best path forward. What is that and why? The high-end deterrence strategy, as its name indicates, is focused on preventing a great power war in Asia or Europe by being able to defeat defeat an invasion force. It prioritizes China over Russia and future modernization over current capacity. And we conclude that this is the best path forward because uh, defeating a Chinese or a Russian invasion is not only the most challenging, but the most consequential threat that the United States could face. Um, And that this approach just strengthens deterrence by denial it offer, also offers the United States options um, for rolling back subconventional, small-scale land grabs if uh, China were to try to seize an island in the South China Sea, or uh, Russia to seize a small piece of territory in Europe.
1: Well, all strategies have risks. What are the risks with that
3: strategy? It's definitely true. There's always a trade-off, and the risks with the high-end deterrent strategy are that you are optimizing for the wrong threat. Um, that there ends up being a different challenge that emerges, which is a surprise, or that the United States ends up facing um, multiple threats simultaneously, so it has to fight more than one war this concurrently. Um, an opportunistic aggressor might try to take advantage of the fact that the U.S. is just preparing to win one large big war. There are also concerns if the technology does not mature as expected or on the timelines that are planned or hoped for and you're accepting some near-term risk uh, in terms of your capabilities because you're going to have to uh, make some cuts in your near-term capacity and um, give up in terms of competing day-to-day in uh, East Asia.
1: So talking about China, how do you think the DOD can work with the current budget to maintain and increase their military technological edge
3: when it comes to China? So the current budget actually um, is sufficient to implement this strategy, but it does require um, the department to make some hard choices and to prioritize this mission, deterring China and and particular threats, and to deprioritize others, and then to follow through and match strategy to resources, which requires convincing members of Congress that this is the right path forward, too. Um, So the department would need to make some cuts to its current capacity, the force size, especially within the army. It needs to also retire some of the older weapon systems that are increasingly expensive to operate and to maintain in order to make investments in future technologies that are needed to compete with China and to acquire more near-term capabilities, which will help to mitigate the near-term risk and put the United States in a position to uh, deter today um, as well as in the future.
1: So Stacey, you mentioned aligning resources with strategy. So what are your recommendations in addition to what you just said for Pentagon leaders so that resources align better with strategy and
3: that the department isn't spread out too thin? Absolutely, so there are two buckets that I think about here, the near term and the long term. So in the near term, Um, There are capabilities that we can acquire today, especially standoff strike, uh, preferred munitions, anti-ship munitions, anti-radiation, anti-tank, and anti-surface ones, where the inventories that we have today are not sufficient for the threat. We can improve our posture in Europe by putting in place heavy forces in Eastern Europe with air defenses, uh, improved artillery, and other enablers. And in Asia, we can take steps to improve the resiliency of our forward posture by uh, in investing in a range of passive defenses, um, as well as focusing our training for operations in contested and degraded environments. In the long term, um, we need to continue to put a lot of money in research and development of new technologies, um, and especially uh, science and technology investments in. Uh, artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, undersea capabilities, bombers, uh, penetrating or attributable um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance assets, uh, networks, and logistics.
1: Stacey, any other final um, recommendations do you have, especially for DOD leaders, in convincing Congress that um, this is the resource allocation needed
3: for the best strategy? One of the things that I think that the 2018 NDS, which otherwise um, did a great job of prioritizing and focusing on China, but one of the areas it got wrong was including the mission of great power competition, which was not very well defined. Um, And that has led and impeded efforts of the Pentagon to focus on conventional deterrence, which should be the Pentagon's priority and the military's main mission. And I think that removing that um, from uh, the military's focus and making that a whole of government effort would allow us to better be able to compete against China today and to prevent any war from occurring in the future.
1: All right, Stacey, thanks so much for being on the program, appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: You can find a link to Stacy's work at govmatters.tv resources. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too. And we want to hear from you. Follow us on social media and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm back in two minutes.